0: This is Your Money with Nancy Snedden of BDO, License Insolvency Trustees. The views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of this station. Your Money with Nancy Snedden of BDO on VOCM.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to Your Money with Nancy Sneddon. I am Nancy Sneddon, thanks so much for tuning in today. On today's show, we're talking about prenuptial agreements. They're on the rise here in Canada, and more couples are opting to sign prenups, as they were commonly known before, before actually getting married. So over the next hour, we're going to discuss why this is, the benefits of prenups, as well as cohabitation agreements. We'll also be discussing who should be thinking about them and why they should be considered. So, joining me for the discussion is Annette Scott of Annette Scott Law Office in Conception Bay South. Annette, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation, Nancy. It's great to be talking with you on this topic. But before we get into the topic, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself and the legal services that you provide here in Newfoundland. Uh, sure. Um, Again, yeah, my name is Annette Scott. Uh,
2: I'm a sole practitioner as a lawyer um, my office is called Annette Scott Law Office I operate in Conception Bay South I'd like to say I'm a long-time resident of Conception Bay South Um, this is where I live and work and I've raised my two children who are now 28 and 24 years old Um, I've operated uh, in addition to living here I've operated my business here for about 11 years now and my clientele consists mostly of individuals and small businesses Um, and my primary areas of practice are real estate, wills and estates and family law Um, and
1: uh, those areas will often overlap with one another. You know, absolutely. And you can see why, why they would overlap for sure. And, you know, I'm interested in hearing about why there's such a rise in the popularity of prenuptial agreements. I mean, it's something that's been around uh, for a really long time. But um, before we sort of jump right into the discussion around the rise in, in prenups and before we get too far in, can you speak a little bit to what exactly a prenuptial agreement is?
2: Sure. Um, Actually, in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, there is no such thing as a prenuptial agreement. Um, Our legislation uses the term domestic contract, um, and that can be one of um, any uh, three things, any one of three things. A domestic contract can be a cohabitation agreement for people who are currently or intending in the future to live together uh, outside marriage. Uh, a marriage contract for people who are either uh, contemplating marriage or already married, and, of course, a separation agreement uh,
1: for people who have previously cohabited and or been married. Interesting. So that's really interesting to know that that's not what it's called here in Newfoundland. I'm sure people would still refer to it as that and then, you know, be directed and corrected on what the right type of agreement is that they're looking to sign, right? Sure. I mean, we we as lawyers call them
2: prenups sometimes. I I certainly do. Um, And I think everybody knows what we mean by that. But technically the term for a couple that's uh, about to be married is a marriage contract and for a couple who are not contemplating marriage but living together, a cohabitation agreement.
1: Great. And you'll hear me talk about it as prenups as we go through the show as well. Sure. sure. (laughs) So now we said off the top of the show that research shows that, you know, we are seeing more Canadians signing prenups more than ever before. So is this something that you're seeing as well amongst clients here in Newfoundland? And if so, what is the age demographic of those that are looking for that type of advice? Uh, Yes, I've I've seen um, an increase in my practice.
2: In my particular case, I can't say it's been a really significant increase, but I am seeing more of them. Um, In my practice, my clientele tends to be of an older demographic. Uh, So the people I see coming in for... um, prenuptial agreements or marriage contracts, um, whatever the case might be, or cohabitation agreements, are typically anywhere from their 40s to their 70s. I'm not actually seeing a lot of uh, young people. Now, I I, um, don't know if my practice is reflective of others, it's probably not, Um, but what I'm seeing are more older people, like I said, anywhere from 40s to 70s, typically in a a second or subsequent serious relationship, like a, a marriage. Right. Um, who in particular want to protect their property, their money, their income, or whatever, to pass on to their own children. There's other reasons that I can get into as well. But um, that's the primary motivating factor is that, you know, this is a second or subsequent marriage for both parties. Um, and they both, you know, uh, are bringing significant assets, income, what, might, uh, what have you, into a, a relationship
1: that they have other considerations for. Well, surveys do show that 4 in 10 people support the idea of having a prenup as part of their wedding planning checklist. And there are a number of reasons why, and you mentioned some of them in that, but let's get into them in a little bit more detail. So in Canada, the average age of spouses at marriage has been rising over the years. As people postpone time, the average age at marriage peaked in 2019, hitting 35.3. But according to StatsCan, it actually went down, and the recent data is 2020. 20 and shows it's 34.8 so not that big of a difference really still around 35 years of age i guess so delaying wedding plans means millennials are coming into the marriage with more assets in their pocket like a house or perhaps a pension plan that they want to protect so then it's not just if it's your um i guess your second or third marriage or whatever the case may be i guess because people are actually getting married later in life they may have already right gotten some of those assets under their belts right coming in that we would them seen, maybe, if they were getting married in their early 20s. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, and people who are getting
2: married these days um, tend to be, you know... Students longer than you know my generation might have been. They have multiple degrees uh, and they've you know they've worked towards uh, obtaining professional qualifications or designations. They may have been uh, you know in their employment for a long time. A 35-year-old may have a, you know a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and have been working 10 years in a career that they've got a lot invested in and have a significant pension plan entitlement. So they they can bring a lot more to the, the table that they might want to protect than, you know, the typical couple might have, say, 20, 30 years ago who got married right out of
1: university when both parties were just starting out in an entry-level job, say, for three. You know, right. And at that point probably had more debt than they did uh, assets. <laughs> no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. Yeah. So we know millennials are a lot more pragmatic when it comes to money Um, and also we think younger Canadians are among the generation who grew up more with divorce than previously before right so they witness firsthand perhaps how messy and emotionally and financially impactful a relationship breakdown can be so do you think that that's impacting the numbers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, my children,
2: um, you know, the children of, of my generation, uh, divorce is common amongst their parents. I mean, you read the statistics. I think it's something like nearly 40 percent of uh, marriages will end in divorce. Uh, the thing, too, I think, is that marriages are not lasting as long. Um You know, like um, a divorce can happen after five years, seven years, 12 years. Um, Not only do marriages, you know, often end in divorce, but they're of much shorter duration than, you know, they were in years past. And people in their, you know, teens, 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s now have grown up with divorced parents. Uh, unlike previous generations and yes they know exactly how messy it is and um you know and the fallout from it, both financial and and otherwise and uh, i guess you know they see what could happen down the road and they are being pragmatic looking down the road at what might happen and trying to you know protect themselves in the event that you know uh, The marriage does end before, uh, you know, before it is. It isn't, you know, until death do us part. That you do part before that, and what happens
1: if you do? Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're right. Like a lot of people are looking at, and, and they because they're pragmatic, it's an easy discussion for them to have in part of, in, as part of their relationship discussion, right? In their, in their marriage planning. I think something else that we've been talking a lot about over the last couple of years is the great wealth transfer that's happening, right? There's a lot of small business owners that are looking to either sell their business or transfer their business down to the next generation. And I'm sure that plays a role too, right? If they're getting married into in, blending a family or their second marriage, Perhaps, and uh, they've accumulated this wealth, they do want to make sure that maybe the business assets that they have accumulated and the wealth that came with that is going to uh, the next generation. Oh, for sure. Yeah.
2: The transfer of wealth and um, uh, property, money and so on from one generation to the other, not just business assets, but just, you know, accumulated wealth uh, on a personal basis too can be quite significant. And people entering into second, third marriages or whatever are, you know, are very concerned about it. Um, You know, I can think of uh, situations where it's a family business, mother and father have run it for the most part. Um, one or two children in particular might have become very involved in the business, and the intent is to uh, pass it on to that child. But that child has, uh, you know, is going through a divorce. Or was divorced previously, and so on. And then, you know, how do they protect that so that, you know, that wealth goes where they want it to, which is to their children and then to the following generations to grandchildren? Um, there's so many iterations of marriages these days. You know, you've got uh, blended families, you've got stepchildren, half children. Um, you uh, see bigger age differences in people getting married, which oftentimes comes with different financial backgrounds and um, and ability to, to generate income and wealth and, and so on. Um, you know, there are just so many more factors. The number of marriages and the, um, you know, the factors that people bring into it with them, like children and businesses and uh, wealth that they accumulated before marriage that they, you know, they want to protect
1: in case things don't work out. Oh, absolutely and, if, and you know we're talking about this and it's maybe not the most romantic way right to start a life together but it is important when it comes to financial planning or any other aspect really of cohabitating so who should be considering a prenup and what should be considered when preparing the prenuptial agreement and that's going to have some advice on that when we come back please stay with us
0: Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Your Money Here on VOCM. I'm your host, Nancy Sneddon, licensed insolvency trustee with BDO Canada right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Joining me today is Annette Scott of Annette Scott Law Office in conception Bay South, And the focus today is prenuptial agreements. So as we've been discussing, more Canadians are getting prenups and for many reasons. We know people don't go into relationship or commitment thinking it's going to end or hopefully they don't, but sometimes, and statistics often show, of course, that change happens and relationships do break down. I see it a lot in my practice. It's it's actually one of the main causes of insolvency and financial difficulty is relationship breakdown. So as much as couples are in love, reality, or should I say research, shows that over 40% of Canadian marriage end in divorce before the couple reach the 50th wedding anniversary and this statistic doesn't account for separations experienced by unmarried spouses or common-law couples so as uncomfortable as it may be a prenuptial agreement is worth thinking about worth talking about with your significant other and more importantly something worth putting in place legally for both parties meeting with a family lawyer and putting in place the proper legal paperwork in the beginning could save you a lot of money later on so now let's talk more about prenups specifically now and how they work so in your opinion who should consider putting in place a prenuptial agreement before saying i do um actually nancy i think everybody um, who's getting married should have a
2: prenuptial agreement um everyone really but certain people in particular uh for example if you have or you expect to have money property and so on that you want to protect in the future uh like for example a home that you already own going into the marriage or a home that you made a larger contribution to for example you and your partner bought a home there was a hundred thousand dollar down payment which you contributed by yourself if you have a business if you expect to have um future inheritance of significant amount of money if you've got savings, a pension, and so on. Um, if you're going into a second or subsequent relationship, for example, a, a blended family, you'd want to spell out support obligations with respect to each other's children, i.e. whether there would be any or not. Um, in particular, uh, either or both of you have significant property or you expect to have, to, to have such property in the future. Um, and as well, where there's a large age difference between the parties. Um, for example, if people get married at um, I don't know 35 and 45, uh, and then they separate when one is 55 and one is 65, one person's financial prospects can be much different than uh, than the others. The 65-year-old is retired and is probably now on a fixed income, whereas uh, perhaps the 55-year-old has 10 more years to generate more income and more assets, and so on. And what you really need to do is look down the road and see uh, where might I end up, what might my circumstances be if this relationship ended, where will I be, and what you know what
1: means will I have. Yeah, that's a really good point and you know beyond just the planning right, and the protection of assets that you may have going in like you've discussed, what are the other benefits of a prenuptial agreement?
2: I think the biggest benefit in any case is that it provides certainty as to what's going to happen on separation or on death, um, prenups and, and so on, other agreements. Um, I kind of describe them as cradle to grave as far as your relationship goes um they can apply for example, if you are just beginning to live together if uh, and they will then state that if you get married it becomes a marriage contract. if you separate it becomes a separation agreement and uh, if uh, one of you should die, the agreement then is binding on your estate so it gives you certainty right through you know the rest of your life as to what will happen if for one reason or another your uh, you and your se- you and your partner separate or you're no longer longer together for some other reason. The legislation for married couples provides only a framework, um, just a basic framework as to what your entitlements are in terms of property, support, uh, and so on. And not every set of facts fits the basic framework. And within that framework, there's still lots of room for disagreement, which is what I like to call fertile ground for litigation, That's where where no one wants to be. Um, I'll give you a a typical example. Uh, I mentioned previously about a lot of marriages being of fairly short duration these days. Um, You've got a couple who's been together for uh, only three years. One of the spouses owned the the home before they, you know, met the uh, spouse. They've only been together a few years but they had one child who's now a year old and they're uh, going to split up. The person who owned the house before the marriage says you shouldn't get half. I want to argue for an unequal division because we were only together for such a short time. And I own this house which costs, you know, several hundred thousand dollars before I met you. That's one of those things that you can easily, you know, sort out in an agreement before you get married. Because if you don't, that's the kind of scenario where um, there can certainly be room for litigation and there's a lot of it surrounding short marriages. That's just one example. There's, you know, there's so many others. Um, like I said, the, the benefit of a prenup is that it gives you certainty as to what's going to happen, what your future is going to look like if this relationship should end for whatever reason. You can look down the road and say, okay, this is where I
1: will be and this is what I will have and what I can expect. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I see it in my practice uh, in that way where um, we're talking about, you know, assets and and liabilities and income and all the things that we need to get a clear picture of the person's finances to give them the right advice. And oftentimes, you know, say, so are you, do you have a mortgage or are you renting, you know, do you own your home? Uh, No, we have a mortgage, but I don't own the house. It's my husband's. He had it when we married, or it's my wife's. She had it when we married. And I'll go on to explain to them, you know, that matrimony loss if they live in a husband and wife there there is a, a half interest in the property so it is something that people maybe don't understand right is the case that they are giving up a half interest in the property or receiving a half interest in the property um, by living there together as husband and wife so it is important to get the right legal advice if that's the case and considering one of these agreements of course is, is how you're going to find out some of this stuff so what should couples take into consideration when preparing their prenuptial agreement and I guess what would happen if some information is withheld does it call into question the validity of the agreement at all
2: Uh, oh for sure yes if there's not full disclosure uh, you can open the door to the agreement being challenged because you know someone uh, the partner who was not privy to all the information that they could have had can easily argue well had I known this or that that you had all these other resources that you didn't disclose to me I may have, you know, uh, wanted a different type of agreement. I agreed to this based on what you told me, uh, and had you told me differently, then I, you know, I may not have agreed to what I agreed to. So yes, yeah, certainly it can uh, it can open the door to the the agreement being challenged, uh, i.e. set aside, uh, and then you're back to you know the legislative framework again. Yes, yeah, so it's important so to me, sure that there's full disclosure for sure. Yeah. And, as I said before, you need to look at what your future circumstances are are likely to be. So if you're twenty five or thirty and you're just starting out in your career, both of you may be you know may not may not have a whole lot in terms of you know uh, material things. But you need to sort of play the tape forward and and look at where do I expect to be in ten years, fifteen years? Where is my partner going to be? What have we discussed about children? You know is one of us going to stay at home and, and and that sort of thing? Um, for example, you know, if you have an agreement and I've seen people in this situation and I've asked them to go home and, you know, have a, have a think about what they're agreeing to the, the boilerplate type of agreement that I see people being presented with sometimes is what's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. And we'll keep things separate. That might be okay right now. Uh, in the beginning where, uh, where people don't think a whole lot about it because, well, neither one of us has anything. So haha, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to be worried about it. But roll the tape forward 15 years. Um, one parent may have spent significant time at home or become a stay-at-home parent. They've, you know, given up their uh, earning power. The other one uh, has progressed uh, a good ways in a career and is making significant money. If that marriage were to end at that point, what's mine is mine and what yours is yours. is not going to look very fair to the stay-at-home parent. Um, oh, so funny. you really want to think about, you know, where. Where you might be, uh, should the relationship end? You know, think about the, um, where you see your life going. Do I plan on staying at home with children? Do I plan on, you know, focusing on my career? Um, how much money am I likely to be making, and how much money are they likely to be making? What assets will I have? Uh, do they have a pension plan? Do I have one? Is theirs better than mine? And so on. Um, you, you have to, you know, look at all those things and say, okay. Ten years from now, 15 years from now, my financial circumstances are most likely to be as follows, and my spouses are most likely to be as follows, and then what would be needed if we separated,
1: uh, you know, for there to be fairness to both of us, and, and any children that might be involved, of course. Oh, there's certainly a lot to consider, and that's some really great advice. So, while marriage remains the predominant type of union in Canada, according to Statistics Canada in 2021, we're seeing more couples living common law than ever before. And these couples don't qualify for a prenup as we were talking about earlier. It's a cohabitation agreement. So, we're going to talk about the benefits of that when your money returns. Please stay with us.
0: Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday after from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to your money here on VLCM. I'm your host, Nancy Sneddon, Licensed Insolvency Trustee with BDO Canada right here in Newfoundland and Labrador. My guest today is Annette Scott of Annette Scott Law Office in Conception-Based South, And we've been talking about the rise in prenuptial agreements here in Canada and the reasons for the increase and the benefits really of having one put in place. And while marriage remains the main type of union in Canada, we are seeing more and more couples opting just to live common law. And according to the latest census, about one quarter... At of couples are living this way today. For those listening, thinking about moving in together, you may want to consider a cohabitation agreement. So, Annette, let's talk a little bit about these agreements. When should a cohabitation agreement be considered, and what are the benefits of these agreements?
2: Um, I think a cohabitation agreement should be considered from the moment you decide that you are going to... You, know, you are going to live together under the same roof. Um, and I think it's really important that you enter into the agreement before you move in together. You don't have to, you can certainly do the agreement uh, after you move in together, after you marry, should that happen, you know, further down the, further down the road. Um, but I think the ideal time to do it is before you start living together and your moving in date would kind of be your, you know, very end target, that's the very last minute sometimes people say well you know we were going to do it but we got busy with the moving in and everything else and they kind of put it off and then the longer they're living together um the further away it tends to get pushed onto the back burner and now that you are living together it can become uh, more awkward to discuss it It, it's uh, you know it's going to be a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation to have with a partner anyway um but I think it becomes more uncomfortable to have it after you're already living together. And the longer you've been living together, the more uncomfortable it can be because now you're seeing how things are playing out. and. Um you may have you know real considerations like um, you know since you moved in together one of you is uh, unexpectedly making a lot more than the other person and now that now that's a live issue for that person and so it can become um, it, it can become harder to address or uh, more uncomfortable of a conversation to get into after you live together and certainly after you've been living together for a while so I would really suggest
1: that people should do it and they should do it before uh, they move in together. And so, and then I guess, you know, you mentioned that things can change, right? And at a point in time, it can be harder to sort of bring it up in conversation once you've been living together for a while. But what about if you had one and things change over time, right? Is there a point in time when these agreements should be updated? Um, Best answer I can give to that, uh, Nancy, I think
2: is is maybe. Uh, Typical lawyer's answer, I suppose. But uh, (laughs) they can only be updated if both parties agree. You can only amend an agreement with another agreement, a written agreement and both parties would have to sign it so you need to be very careful about these things because once they're written and signed they are carved in stone unless both of you agree to uh, to change it and there can be any number of reasons to change it Um, you know like for example uh, when you entered into an agreement 25 years ago you had no children you've since had children they've grown up they've gone they've left home there might be provisions about support and so on, you know, financial support, um, spousal support, child support, and so on that you may no longer be comfortable with having in an agreement. Um, there could have been a change in one or both of your careers or businesses that you were in. One of you might have developed a serious illness or disability that kind of changes what the future might look like for one of you. It could be any number of reasons, uh, those and others, that, you know, could cause one or both of you to want to reopen it. And and, you know, to consider a different agreement, you know, a different division
1: of assets uh, and income on separation. Yeah, I guess the important thing is that it does need to be agreed to by both parties in order to revisit the agreement, right, and make changes.
2: Yes, it's one so, of those uh, one of those times where the saying is absolutely true,
1: uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You don't get it get it right the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, we're talking about prenups um, for when you're getting married and the cohabitation agreements uh, for those who are going to live common law. And of course in these situations, they may eventually marry, they may never marry. Um, but there's a lot of similarities, right, in these two agreements. So I'm assuming that, you know, I don't want to assume I'm going to ask you the question um, that a cohabitation agreement similarly to a prenuptial agreement can also be contested right they, they can be
2: contested yeah uh, and prenuptial what people commonly call prenuptial agreements cohabitation agreements it's basically the the same thing like I said it uh, it outlines what happens in a relationship when you uh, live together get married separate divorce or die uh, it, it takes into account all those scenarios um, so it can be, and once you enter into an agreement, it can be, as I said, carved in stone for the rest of your natural life. Um, and they won't be lightly overturned. Um, you know, it's not like well, what's the point of of doing one if you know someone can, on a technicality, reopen it. It's not that easy. Um, you know, you um, if you're suggesting that there's some reason that you shouldn't be bound by an agreement that you entered into, there's a pretty you know high bar you're going to have to meet to prove why you shouldn't be held to an agreement that you made. Um, The most usual grounds are that there was uh, like a lack of understanding. You did not understand what you were, what you were signing. Um, You didn't have independent legal advice. You know, you were just put in front of the other person's lawyer and they said, sign here and you kind of felt like you didn't have any choice, which brings me to the next ground, which is duress. Uh, I've seen people, for example, come in on a, Uh, A Thursday with a wedding pending on Saturday saying, you know, I've been told if I don't sign this, the wedding's off. Um, You know, that kind of situation screams of duress, of a person basically being coerced into signing an agreement that they're not necessarily comfortable with. Um, Another ground is if an agreement is found to be what a court will call unconscionable. In other words, you know, it's just so one-sided that it's completely unfair um, to one of the parties and uh, out of a sense of, you know, equity, fairness, justice, whatever term you want to use, the court feels that it should be set aside because the other person, you know, didn't know what they uh, they were signing didn't realize that it gave them no rights uh, and left them in a very vulnerable financial state as a result of signing it, it can be set aside. So it's important to you know um, to make sure that both parties agree, you're trying to be as fair as you can with one another um, when you're looking down the road to what might happen, that you both understand it. And uh, that you act like parties negotiating a contract. I go to get my financial legal advice, you get yours. Um, so that you've you know you're looking at your own interest, but so is the other person um, trying to say okay can we just sit down in front of one lawyer because we're agreed we're on the same page that sort of thing you're just opening the door to potentially having it overturned down the road and it's not in either party's best interest um, get your own legal advice and financial advice because your advisors will look at your interest and your interest only
1: and that was going to be my next question, actually. So you were talking about, you know, one of the grounds being that you didn't get independent legal advice. So that was that was my question. I'm guessing that it's always best to make sure that you have individual uh, legal advice, someone who's really looking out for your interest as opposed to using the same lawyer. Because I'm assuming, you know, some people may opt to use one lawyer in order to, to save costs, perhaps, Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I I
2: understand that, you know, that feeling in the moment. Um, But again, if you play the tape forward five years, seven years, 15 years or whatever, uh, I'm afraid it's a decision that you might live to, um, you know, you might live to regret because... Whatever uh, it costs you to have, you know, a good agreement done, is going to cost you a lot more potentially in litigation if you, uh, you know, if you don't have one. Uh, so saving yeah. a few hundred or even a couple thousand dollars on the front end um, is nothing compared to what it could cost you on the back end when you know the marriage or the relationship is over and there's disputes about entitlements. Uh, and so on, and not just the you know the monetary part of it, but just the emotional toll uh, of being in conflict with someone and the uncertainty of not knowing how it's going to turn out. Um, you know it, it's. Uh uh, it's extremely stressful for the for the parties involved. And then there may be children, too, who are, you know, and the effect will spill over onto them. So there's a lot more to consider than money, but just for purposes of uh, cost alone, what it will cost you up
1: front is, uh, pales in comparison to what it will cost you on the other end. Yeah, I think that's some great advice, right, is looking at, you know, small costs in the beginning to avoid uh, a larger cost uh, in the end. I think that's really great advice. So I'm certain there's listeners out there who are thinking exactly that, but also wondering how do I start the conversation, right? How do I bring this up with my significant other? Because I can imagine in some circumstances, you know, not knowing what the reaction can be, some people would find it very difficult to start that conversation. So we'll have some advice on that when we come back. Please stay with us.
0: Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation.
1: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning, starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOC. AM.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Your Money here on VOCM. I'm your host Nancy Sneddon. My guest today is Annette Scott of Annette Scott Law Office in Conception Bay South, and Annette's sharing some great advice on the benefits of prenuptial and cohabitation agreements today. And there's no doubt that there's often a negative connotation, I guess, tied to prenups and cohabitation agreements, or there has been over the years. But reality is, I think that you actually can be positive in thinking about this uh, for all parties involved. And we've touched on some of the reasons why a good idea and then I think the hardest part though of putting one of these agreements in place is bringing the topic up right just starting the conversation so what advice do you have for listeners on how to best do this um, well, Nancy, first
2: I would uh, say to people, go get your legal and financial advice first, um, because out of that, out of those conversations, you know, maybe some um, helpful information for you in starting the discussion with your partner. And you need to know too the things that you have to consider. So it's best to have, you know, um, uh, I hate to use this term, but going—you don't want to go into battle unarmed. But um, we certainly don't want it to be a battle, more like a contract negotiation. Um, The other thing I say to people is that you kind of have to take off your partner hat and be businesslike, you know, like you're, you're two people negotiating a contract where, um, each realizes the other wants, you know, the best deal they can get out of it, and there's going to have to be some give and take. But and essentially, that's what it is. It's a it's a contractual negotiation, um, and you need to and you need to treat it as such and try and put the emotions. Aside, and like I said, just for uh, that short period of time, be business like, set aside a time, a quiet time where you're going to um, have the discussion, and get your advice from your financial and legal people, and leave your friends and family out of it. They may want to be helpful, but uh, sometimes it can, um, you know, create c- uh, confusion and. Um, You know, other things that you don't want in the mix, put it that way. Uh, Keep it between the two of you and your
1: advisors and be as businesslike as you can about us. Yeah, I think that that's also some really good advice. So I guess, you know, you talked earlier about people who've come in on a Thursday, you know, saying that they need to get this done and sign it before they get married on Saturday. I'm sure you wouldn't recommend that. So how far in advance of the marriage, I guess, or in the cohabitation, should you be creating this agreement and I guess having the discussion related to it? Um, like I said before, I think you should do it as soon as possible after
2: you decide that you're, you're going to live together and certainly before you actually start living together. Um, Once you've made that decision, then you should go and get your financial and legal advice, uh, then sit down and have a conversation with each other, and then you go back and instruct your uh, respective lawyers as to what you've agreed to, um, which will lead then to a draft agreement that that you can both approve and ultimately uh, sign. If someone comes in to see me about doing a cohabitation agreement, I will sit down and do a fairly extensive interview with them about their background, their educational work background, that of their partners, what's their current earning power, for example, uh, how do they expect that to change over time? What assets, what debt are both of you bringing into the relationship? You try and get a whole, you know, a very well-rounded picture of um, their past their present and uh, and their future so that you can recommend to them, um, okay, like for example, if your spouse it looks like you're going, uh, they will always have, you know, twice or three times the earning power that you're going to have. In the event that the two of you separate, you as the person with the, you know, the much lower income most likely, you would want to be protected by means of an agreement for spousal support. Um, just, you know, one of uh, many, many examples um, of things that you would
1: you would need to consider. I think that that's an um important thing to consider too right it's not sometimes you think about it from the perspective of the assets that you want to protect but you need to also be looking at it from the other side right and making sure that you know if you haven't um or aren't expected because maybe you are going to be a stay-at-home parent for a number of years able to um I guess, get to the level of assets as your partner. You want to make sure you're protected from that perspective too. So it's important that you are really looking at it from both sides of the coin there. And I think that's why, as you said earlier, it's important to make sure you're getting independent uh, advice. So how long, Annette, does it take to get one of these agreements put in place? I'm guessing it could vary on the circumstances. And I guess part two to that question is, would it have to be completed prior to moving in or getting married? Or is there any leeway there? Um, a bit difficult to be really specific about that, Nancy, but, um,
2: you know, if someone comes to me and they say they want a cohabitation agreement or, or a marriage contract or whatever, um, it generally can get something like that turned around in a couple of weeks to a month or so, depending on, you know, how busy I uh, I might be. It also depends, um, you know, how complicated it's going to be. If you're two people with multiple business interests and you've each got children and that sort of thing, it can be, you know, much more involved. Um, Uh, I see sometimes these, you know, boilerplate agreements that basically just say what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. Um, I, I, I think they should be much more specific than that. Uh, taking into account your actual and and your most likely uh, future circumstances, so um, you know they can be very fairly simple, um, uh, or they can be pretty complicated. So how long it will take it to, to get done and how much it will cost can certainly vary. But I would say you know a reasonable um, a reasonable assumption might be anywhere from say a couple of weeks to, to a couple of months to get something done. And from, you know, maybe several hundred uh, dollars to a few thousand dollars in terms of cost. But as I said before, too, uh, that pales in comparison to what the fallout could be financially and otherwise if there's disputes down the road and you don't have an agreement to fall back
1: on. Oh, absolutely. And so does it It does then have to be put in place prior to, you know, the oh, actual so event no. taking place? No. No, no, no
2: the and the legislation uh, specifically addresses this. You can do a cohabitation agreement after you start living together. you can do a marriage contract after you're uh, married. you could be married five years and decide to do one. Um, I don't advocate that. it just seems to me and um, my experience that the longer people have been together living together, married or unmarried, um, the more they tend to sort of push it aside and and it ends up not getting, you know, not getting addressed. Whereas if you've got a moving in date or you've got a wedding date, you've got a target, like a deadline that you've, you've got to meet and um it kind of gives people like psychologically an end date to things well, okay i have to have it done by this date um and so it's more likely to to get done whereas if you're already living together already
1: married um well we'll get to it you know whenever and whenever never happens yeah, no, I think that's some great advice, especially if you're someone who you know. You know, you tend to procrastinate on on different things. And you know what? Life is busy. So things come up unintended, right? It may not be procrastination at all. It's just things come up that prevent you from getting to it. So I, I, I'm an advocate of that as well as, you know, the sooner you can deal with something and get it put behind you, you can move on to, to other things. Well, listen, some great information for our listeners uh, out there today. And I think everyone would have learned something about these agreements or or maybe you know we busted a myth about the agreement that they thought so thanks for joining me today but we do have some time now for some final thoughts so if you could leave our listeners with a final piece of advice or a final thought today what would it be Um, I guess it would be that you should really seriously consider doing a cohabitation
2: agreement or a marriage contract or what's commonly called a prenuptial agreement if you're planning on getting married Um, because it gives you those things, the certainty, the predictability, and fairness uh, down the road if you should should ever need it because uh, if you don't, um, I've seen people end up in some very – Financially vulnerable situations when the marriage breaks up um, after many years. This might seem a bit stereotypical or a little bit out of date, but the example that immediately comes to mind is, you know, the stay-at-home mom who's been out of the workforce for seventeen years, and when the marriage breaks up, uh, she has to now find a job to support herself um, and children, and um, hasn't accumulated a pension or anything like the like the husband has, um, and. You know it has become over the years financially dependent on the other person um, that's what happens sometimes over time one spouse becomes financially dependent on the other so that then when the marriage ends um, sometimes people will feel well i've kind of got to take what uh, what they give me because i don't you know i don't have the means to contest it or fight it so you know much better to agree on those things uh, ahead of time and i will say for couples who are cohabiting and not getting married, even more important for those people. Family law can be a very complex area of law, but it's even more so for people who aren't married. With married couples, at least you've got a legislative framework. You've got a, a you know a basic framework to start from. With uh, common law couples, you don't. It, it's, purely ba- it's called common law because it's based on case law or common law, um, and that's evolving over time. The, the waters can be very muddy uh, when it comes to common law relationship so I would say even more important for those people to have agreements
1: yeah and i think you know we're not we don't want to take uh, the romanticism out of a relationship right and and the excitement about getting married but i guess if i summarize in that it's kind of like you know disability insurance or life insurance you hope you're never going to need it it doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. well i always say better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining me on the show today. If people do want to reach out and that wanted to get some advice, uh, ask some more questions about this or or another legal topic, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, You can reach me by phone and my uh, number
2: is 709-834-2424. Uh, My email is aness at aescottlaw.ca. Or you can check
1: my website, which is just aescottlaw.ca. Great. Well, thanks again for joining me today. And, of course, I always want to hear from you, my listeners. If you have a comment or question or even a topic that you'd like me to discuss here on Your Money, you can email us at bdo.ca or give me a call at 800-563-8337. Until next week, I'm Nancy Sneddon. Stay safe and be well, everyone.
0: If you have a or comments, send an email to yourmoney@bdo.ca. at bdo.ca. This has been Your Money with Nancy Snetton of BDO, License Insolvency Trustees, on your VOCM.